and solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming and Zooming with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, as we are in our fourth month of this COVID pandemic. From the beginning, Shelter and Solidarity has worked to bring together disparate issues, issues on the one hand directly related to the COVID pandemic and other issues we might call the endemic structural and historical issues that have plagued the United States and the world for much longer than this COVID, this COVID pandemic's time. Today, in our 12th episode, we bring together two themes, two clusters of issues which we have already treated in some depth on this episode, on this show. Uh, first, we, the first cluster has to do with the university. What is happening to the university during this COVID pandemic? What are the crises, the inequities, and the struggles that structure higher education in the 21st century? And what can we do about them? The second cluster of issues, which we have been dealing with from the beginning as well, and especially in the last few weeks, are those issues clustered under the question of systemic racism, racial oppression, and particularly the struggle that has fired up and flamed up over the last few weeks, and in fact months now, around the struggle against police brutality, police violence, and the general carceral, mass incarceration system in this, in this country. Today, we bring the university and the question of racism together and ask the question, what is the university's relationship to this systemic racism that everyone or many people are now talking about in an open and a more open way? What does it mean to envision an anti-racist university? What would it mean to envision an anti-racist practice on and around university campuses across this country and beyond? We ask this question not only at an abstract level in terms of what the university in its idealized self-image may think of itself in terms of what it is in relationship to racism, but we ask this question of the university's relationship to racism and anti-racism through the particular vantage point shared by contingent faculty, the standpoint of contingency, which is to say the standpoint of the teaching majority within our higher education universities and colleges across this country, but people who are often inside and outside these privileged institutions at once, doing the bulk of the teaching work, but often excluded in various ways from exerting the power and voice within these institutions that one might think would accrue with the title of faculty. 
We have some very deep questions to get into today, and some of them are posted on our Facebook event page, and I encourage you to engage them yourself. Um, a couple of those questions include, how can an academy historically and presently structured by and operating through exploitation hope to meaningfully address systemic racism? How are corporate elites and neoliberal administrators, as well as some faculty, responding to the current crisis associated with the names of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the massive protests that have occurred since those police murders? How, can, how are these elites responding to this crisis in ways that tend to perfume rather than uproot the fundamental inequalities that run through our institutions? What would a truly egalitarian anti-racist practice look like for those who are somewhat anchored in and around higher education? What are the structures that need to be transformed if our institutions are ever to have a chance of living up to the so-called universals embedded in that very term, the university? And there are other questions you can see on our Facebook page. We may not get to all of these questions today, but I'm very glad to have a terrific group of contingent faculty, scholars, and activists from across the country to help us do these and other questions some justice today. And I'm also pleased to mention that this will not be our last discussion of this topic, as it has not been our first. This is, in fact, our first collectively produced episode in which guests of former episodes of Shelter and Solidarity have become organizers and co-producers of an episode. And we, I think I speak for all the participants as guests and co-hosts today when we promise that we hope to return to these themes and issues that come up today with you, with you all, within a month's time and to make a regular series of discussions around contingency, inequality, and higher education. So we have a lot to look forward to today and looking ahead. The first person I'm excited to reintroduce to you is actually going to co-host the episode today. And this is Bobby, Bobby Lee Smart. Bobby, uh, it's so great to have you back here all the way from California. We are coast to coast in this contingent faculty episode. Welcome back to Shelter and Solidarity, Bobby. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to be here. I think I told you the other day after we planned, I immediately text Damon and I was like, I am super nerdy because I could talk about this stuff all day. Like this is my happy place. Um, so I'm very excited that we're going to make this a regular thing. I think that exposing what's going on in higher education is super important because a lot of people don't understand that. Um, so my background quickly is that I, my master's and bachelor's are in sociology. I'm a sociology adjunct in the community college system here in Southern California. I work in two different districts, but I'm also the executive director of a part-time only local here in Southern California for the community college. Um, and I also have my doctorate in education, so I do have an EDD. Um, and I chose that specific program at Cal State LA because it said that it was a social justice and educational reform program. And as you can imagine, we never once spoke about educational reform. We just talked about how the systems work. And I had to explain as a sociologist multiple times what social justice was and why saying things like, you know, um, having to go through the struggle, having to, you know, work for your, for your school is good and it builds character in our students, having to explain to them like, um, this is a social justice program and we're supposed to make sure that our students don't have to do that to survive, that they don't have to work three jobs and go to school full time to somehow prove that they are worthy of a degree. Um, so, that kind of leads me into what's been said recently from a lot of these institutions um, and their problems with making these statements about Black Lives Matters, but then 
not funding their black student union, not hiring faculty of color, not supporting faculty of color, not doing anything about bullying with, um, with our students and faculty, right? So those types of things. So that's kind of where I'm at and what my experience in the institution is, but also how it relates to what we're talking about today. Yeah. Bobby Lee, we're so glad to have you joining the show. I mean, with your energy and enthusiasm for these topics, which I think is a must, because we are in a long struggle here, it's, and we need to be able to sustain that energy, but also for your experience and your scholarship on this topic, as well as both faculty and as organizer yourself. I mean, I think you already point to something that I hope uh, all of our guests in different ways will get into, which is kind of this gap between the self-image or the projected image of the university or the university as represented by its official administration and the actual practices that characterize the university, right? And I think that one of the goals of today's show is to kind of engage that, not simply in a cynical way that's just dismissing, you know, the potential that's embedded in the, in the university as by just saying, oh, it'll never live up to its values, but to really draw out concretely and systematically, you know, a map of what is the actual location of the university recognizing the inequalities and differences among colleges and universities as well, right? And these issues of systemic inequality and systemic racism in particular, right? To think class, race, and contingency together. I mean, just bouncing off of your story, I can say certainly here at UMass Boston, I, you know, I can recall just a few months ago, or maybe it was a year ago, time has been flying here during COVID times in different ways. Uh, you know, we, the upper administration was celebrating the diversity of its new tenure track hires right? In one, literally in one breath, right? And then in the next breath saying, but unfortunately, we will have to cut the funding for the research and community centers that serve as African American community, um, the, the indigenous Native American community in the, in the Boston area, the, the, the Latino, Latinx community, uh, veteran services, um, and so forth, right? So we see this kind of schizophrenia between, uh, on the one hand, an attempt to try to market the university as an increasingly diverse or diversity friendly place, but budget decisions and budget cuts, which often undermine the very material support and the very structures, which emerged out of the struggles of the 60s and the 70s to at least give some representation and some specific support for issues, histories and struggles affecting particularly, but not only people of color and people from historically oppressed and marginalized communities. Right, so I mean, I think this is one of the things we'll get to today. And I think we have three great guests in addition to Bobby Lee as co-host to help us get into this from coast to coast in different ways and different angles. Uh, I'm gonna introduce all three guests right now and then turn it over to Bobby Lee to ask a, a first round of questions to you all. Uh, we're joined by Wendy Marshall first from Philadelphia, a non-tenure track faculty member, a scholar and activist located at Temple University, active with RAFT, a name I really love. I mean, it, it has a great connotation for this moment, I think, a RAFT, the rank and file at Temple Caucus. Uh, she's a community organizer and also active in the Black Caucus of, a, of the People's Strike. Wendy, thank you for joining us today and for coming back to Shelter and Solidarity. Our second guest will be Damon Dees, Damon is a California-based contingent faculty and scholar with a focus on anti-racism and the university. And Damon is joining us for the first time. It's great to have you with us, Damon. Finally, among our first three guests, we have Benedict Stork, returning to Shelter and Solidarity from being a respondent in Shelter and Solidarity, episode eight. He is a Seattle-based non-tenure track faculty and activist with some deep understanding of the political economy of the university. Uh, and American society more generally. And we're just really thrilled to have you back, Ben. So thanks for joining. 
reminding everyone we can only actually see you and the folks at home can only see you when you do speak. So everyone remember to unmute yourself when you are speaking and of course, mute yourself when you're not because you never know, at least if you live where I do, when there's gonna be a 16 wheeler rolling by your house behind you and, and, uh, and interrupting, interrupting the show. Uh, Bobby Lee, why don't you take the first question for our, for our great group of guests. Okay, so I think that um, it would be great for everyone to kind of give a little bit of your background and what you're studying, what you're doing, um, how it relates to today with the racism, with higher education, so that we can give context to why, um, not why, that doesn't make sense, but context to um, how you're going to answer the questions, right? Because I think that where you are, what your political back, or not political, look, I also Democratic Party stuff, um, how your educational background, your research background influences the way you're going to answer or talk about these questions. So I'll just go in the order that I think Joe gave us, which was Wendy, then Damon, then Ben. So about three to five minutes, just who are you and how does this relate to it? Wendy was also my favorite last time. Um, I think I told her she was my hero, so I'm really excited that she's back. Not that I don't love Damon and Ben also, but. Hi, thank you. Bobby Lee. Um, so my name is Wendy Marshall. Um, I'm an adjunct at Temple University in a program called Intellectual Heritage. Um, um, I'm a community organizer. Um, I'm one of the early members of RAFT, Rank and File Temp Temple, which is a, a contingent focused caucus within the Temple Association of University Professionals. Um, we founded the caucus because um, as a TAUP is a union that represents all ranks of faculty and we find that it is um, not adequately representing the urgencies that affect um, contingent faculty, adjuncts and NTTs. Um, yeah, that's all. All right, thanks. Damon, go ahead. All right. Hello, I'm Damon. Um, I'm contingent faculty at um, Cal State LA. I also came through that glorious EDD program that Bobby uh, spoke so highly about. Um, proud to say that we, we raised hell the whole way through. But uh, my work, as Ben said, is, is basically on anti-racism in higher education. Um, more specifically, I was focused on uh, the well-intentioned educator. Um, and their complicity in racism in higher education. And I was drawn to this out of, really out of frustration um, with the misconceptions that, that professors seem to have surrounding racism. They have these ideas that only bad people, only evil people, only bigots produce racism, right? That, that the person that voted twice for Obama can't somehow be racist, that the person who holds these egalitarian principles, right? That person can't be racist. Um, and I was frustrated with that. I kind of wanted to show the delusion of that. And so uh, that was kind of the, the motivation for my work. Um, what I was looking at specifically was um, the helpfulness of educators uh, and how that was moderated by white supremacist racialization processes. So basically how racial socialization uh, moderated how helpful educators were to their students. Um, and I was specifically looking at not, not not helpfulness in the term of, of um, the normal duties of a professor, right? So not helping in class or, or, or helping in any way that a professor normally would have to, but specifically going above and beyond the remit of your duties and helping in those contexts. That's what I was looking at. And I wanted to see if there were any differences um, 
in the rate between depending on the race of the students. Um, and so what I found was that uh, indeed the rate at which professors are willing to help white students was almost 25%, not quite as like 23%, but almost 25% higher than the rate at which they were willing to help uh, black students, um, specifically in the context of going above and beyond their normal uh, duties. And so, uh, yeah, again, it was, it was born of frustration. It was, it was, it was a, the goal was to show that even these well-intentioned, even these progressive and, and, and even these egalitarian professors can still reproduce inequities and, and, and racism in their pedagogical practices. And so, yeah, that's my, that's my work. Uh, ben, do you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure, hi everybody. Um, <clears throat> so I'm gonna maybe do this a little bit differently, um, which maybe will uh, show how I kind of approach things. Um, so I'll, I'll, first I'm just gonna mess with Joe a little bit. Um, so uh, he described me as a Seattle-based uh, NTT contingent faculty activist. Um, and I, I hesitated when he said that, because I'd, I'd like to say organizer, but that's not really true either, um, since <laughs> I'm no longer employed and, and uh, the drive that I was a part of failed at Seattle U. Um, but I like activists, not because I'm actually doing any activism, uh, sadly, but I, I do a lot of acting out. Um, <laughs> I send a lot of uh, belligerent emails to my colleagues. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess I'm closer to an activist than an organizer right now. Um, and uh, my background is a, is a interdisciplinary humanities background. Um, and in general, uh, my orientation is, is towards the, the political left um, and uh, Marxist communists mostly. Um, and so I actually, and, and here's why I kind of want to flag that because I'm going to be a nerd and read a little something because um, otherwise I go even longer than I'll already go. So um, apologize, apologies for reading. Um, hope your eyes don't glaze over. Um, so first, I want to say uh, race and capitalism or racial capitalism. If, as Marxists of certain stripes occasionally say, social relations are, in the final instance, determined by the economic, or put slightly differently, by class struggle, then it is race in the first instance that conditions capitalism. They, capitalism and racism, are neither identical nor reducible to one another. Racism and racialization exist outside of capitalism, and capitalism is conceivable without race. However, as they actually exist, each is shaped by the other, constituted in particular ways and in particular historical conjunctures as structures of domination. Capitalism as it emerged historically is a decisively racialized class system. Uh, second point, the university functions within capitalism, both historically and presently. Um, the university's function within capitalism is the reproduction of capitalist social relations or more succinctly, class reproduction. This function takes on different forms in different moments and reproduces capitalist social relations, both in its internal functioning and in its structural social function. In reductive form, this coheres around the figures of the professor and the student, each occupying an idealized position in relation to one another and the institution. Of course, this idealized abstraction misses or obscures the actual configuration and lived experience of these positions. The student is neither the carefree youth nor the searching young person. The professor is neither the tweedy, distracted, misfit, sheltered from society, nor the mythic genius living the life of the mind. 
In our moment, it is better to conceive of this pair as itself segmented, bearing the markings of a more, more refined class structure within the university that replicates and reproduces class and racial hierarchies. Um, in an off-cited but seemingly rarely read text, race, articulation, and society structured in dominance, the brilliant Stuart Hall famously writes, race is the modality in which class is lived, the medium through which class relations are experienced, the form in which it is appropriated and fought through, end quote. While this quotation is regularly trotted out, um, <clears throat> relatively little is said about the argument and central concept that leads Hall to make this statement, the concept of articulation. Articulation is the mechanism by which things are put and held together. It is also, of course, associated with expression, though this is not what Hall is interested in. I raise this because articulation might be a fruitful way to approach anti-racism in the academy, insofar as it could <clears throat> help us understand the ways anti-racist discourse is deployed by the university, but also functions in excess of that deployment. Um, here, I'll stop reading. Uh, so what I'm interested in is the way in which um, and how uh, articulating the relationship between class and race, um, as Hall argues, uh, we can see both the way that anti-racism, especially as it's uh, currently deployed in the university um, with the numerous statements we've had, but also, and I, I imagine those of you connected to institutions have gone through this, um, the initiatives, the trainings, um, these uh, are, I think, um, utilizing the uh, concept of race to, in certain ways, um, displace other aspects, uh, other fundamental um, aspects of inequality that the uh, institution functions through and reproduces, which are um, fundamentally raced and classed. And of course, one of those is precisely the fact that um, that the teaching faculty is a, uh, a class relation itself, right? Um, that you have a tenure class and an untenured class, um, and they exist in relation to the university in different ways. Um, and uh, often, in my own experience, and maybe others have this, uh, race can in those situations be deployed um, precisely to uh, reject or um, foreclose any, con any conversation about that internal um, race and class relationship. Um, I believe empirically uh, it is also the case that non-tenure track faculty are far more diverse than tenure faculty as well as population. Um, but that said, I also um, want to uh, sort of uh, insist that articulation works both ways. Um, that is, if the institution deploys race as an obscuring factor, um, an, an obscuring tactic um, to uh, hide or otherwise um, distract from its sort of function as a both machine based on on inequality and a um, uh, both reproducing inequality and functioning through inequality. Um, Anti-racism is also um, precisely another way to push on that function of inequality, that basis, that fundamental basis of um, uh, class reproduction in its raced um, form as it exists in our uh, in the United States. And I think that um, that gets me into sort of two ways. This is where I'll end. Sorry, I've already gone on too long. Um, first, I kind of want to go to both uh, what um, Joe uh, and the, the group put together and the questions around the question of sort of university and the universal. Um, because I have this really, this really terrific quote from Assad Hader's Mistaken Identity, um, which is a really interesting little text I highly recommend um, on these issues. And uh, he uh, gives us this concept called, um, what he calls insurgent universality. 
Uh, and so I'm just gonna read really quickly a couple sentences. That's how he, he, he frames this. So he writes, universality does not exist in the abstract as a prescriptive principle, which is mechanically applied to indifferent circumstances. It is created and recreated in the act of insurgency, which does not demand emancipation solely for those who share my, my identity, but for everyone. It says that no one will be enslaved. It equally refuses to freeze the oppressed in the status of victimhood that required protection from above. It insists that emancipation is self-emancipation. Um, I really like this formulation of universality, uh, both because it is active, uh, it is um, a universality that's in formation in the insurgent moment. Um, I think anti-racist um, anti -racist work does this in practice, um, not when it's, well, when it's, um, uh, not when it's done from above, but when it comes from below, right? The sort of solidarity practices, uh, the coalitions um, that we see form on the street in struggle, right? Um, and then the last thing I wanna kind of go and I will really end with is that uh, I think abolition is another framework we might use to approach um, the university. And within that, I would just sort of throw out the practical idea of um, using the, the framework of non-reformist reform when we think about anti-racism in the university, um, right? And the first uh, sort of principle of non-reformist reform is does the reform produce or provide more resources for the institution, right? Um, does it sort of fit into the already existing conditions or does the reform push back against those, make those harder? Um, so I kind of want to throw that out uh, and the paradigm of both abolition and uh, non-reformist reform as possible ways of thinking about university and anti-racist struggles. Thanks for all that, Ben. I mean, there's, there's so much there really to unpack. I mean, you've given us a number of, of abstractions and concepts. I think we could spend the next hour and a half really kind of concretizing and bringing out, right? I mean, I think for those who are, may not be as familiar with the Marxist tradition, right? I mean, you know, just to bring it down to earth, right? You know, Ben talks about the university's function as a, uh, in, in class and capitalist relations uh, in terms of social reproduction or capital and class reproduction. You know, we're thinking about the, the, we talked about it over the last time we met, uh, Ben, the sorting and gatekeeping function of the university, among others, right? The way in which the university, contrary to our egalitarian ideals, or at least some of us, is a place that decides who's going to be a manager and who's going to be a worker, right? Who's going to be a skilled, a so-called skilled worker and who's going to be working a service job for low pay, right? Who's going to be trained to be a, a leader making the decisions for the future and who and who and uh, and who will be sent off by those people to fight and die in a war for you know imperial control of oil right so uh not to be too reductive and simplistic about it but just i think it's you know, important to make sure everyone's kind of following that but i think those are great concepts to work with wendy i'd like to bring you in i mean and ask you to step into the same kind of mode that ben uh, just occupied right you've introduced yourself institutionally but i'd like to hear more like what is your you know ben just kind of laid out some core concepts for, for, for in terms of how he views this you know race and class and the university's place within it and 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 even the relationship to you know anti so-called anti-racism uh, or the different ways anti-racism can appear within that context uh without without necessarily uh you know locking you to those terms what's your read on the kind of way in which uh, racism and or anti-racism in the university kind of intersect here. Uh, what's your read on like what's going on um, in higher ed today uh, from your particular uh, vantage point, uh, not only in your institution, but, uh, but more broadly? Thanks. 
Um, I guess I would like to start with a, a big, big question, um, which is um, what do I mean when I say that universities are monuments to white, to the white ruling class? Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to break that down some. So, um, and I also want to say that a non-reformist reform um, is something that pushes the working class towards socialist victory, right? And so we, how we think about that in the university, um, you can think about how very, very far the university is from any such thing. So, you know, just to raise a series of questions, what is tenure? What is the point of tenure? And what is the point of tenure if the only people protected by it are producers of a bankrupt form of Western knowledge? Um, what counts as research? What counts as service? And, and why are a group of old white tenure people in charge of who produces knowledge? Um, what's the relationship between the workers who cook and clean and keep the place secure and those who stand up and pontificate? Um, I, I, I want to know, are white faculty prepared to lose their jobs if we're serious about um, tearing it down and building it back up again, which I absolutely think we have to do? Um, what, what is the stagecraft that goes into producing a university so that it appears to be some kind of liberal universal body, which it is not? It is a plantation where um, black and brown workers are congregated at the bottom doing the work that makes the place go and some wealthier, whiter people get to stand up and pontificate and produce knowledge, get paid to produce knowledge, I should say, because we all produce knowledge, but there's some people who are paid to do it. Um, I wanna know what labor struggles could look like in a university that was configured differently. Um, why are we all segregated into, into you know, faculty unions and then security worker unions and food service unions? Why aren't we all one big union? Um, working to figure out how to make it, how to make it work. That's how it works in Cuba. Um, yeah, so those are the, some of the things that, that, um, that I, I really want to be able to talk about. That's great, Wendy, and, and we really want to hear you talk about them and, and hear others engage those questions too. Wendy, uh, last time we spoke on the show a few weeks ago, I, I think it became clear to me that you were someone who although we're very involved in contingent faculty university fights, is also anchored, I think by your own words, even primarily off campus, right? As a community organizer involved in such efforts as stopping university development and gentrification plans, the, the, the notorious state, stadium stompers, which successfully stopped a stadium, a university, Temple University Stadium from being plopped in the middle of historically black Philadelphia. Um, I wondered, I guess my question for you would be, how do you, conceive of your own position within the university related to struggles which are clearly not limited to the university and, and, and struggles where the university may seem, as, as you have described it, almost more as uh, adversary than as, as ally, right? More as a you know, kind of invader, right? Or a problem than a solution. Uh, you know, how, do you, how do you conceive of your you know, radical practice uh, in, in, inside and outside the university? Yeah, I definitely see the university and universities as 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 adversaries, um, from all the way from who and what who produces knowledge and what kind of knowledge is produced, to the role of universities in displacing my people all across the United States. Um, I I am seriously marginal to the university, um, which doesn't bother me. Um, I find it a useful perch. I don't define myself primarily as a campus activist, um, 
mostly because as a super white kind of upper class place, it isn't really a comfortable place for me to be in struggle. Um, I, I was part of the effort to get adjuncts in, in accepted into the um, faculty union at Temple um, and even had some roles, um, leadership roles in, in the union. Um, but in the end of the day, can't really define it. And it depends on which day you ask me. And this is definitely how I felt before COVID and before the uprisings that um, the university fighting about the university or in the We may, we've lost you for a moment, Wendy. Hopefully we're gonna get you back. You're frozen for us here. Uh, maybe while we're waiting for Wendy to- This isn't my primary struggle at all. But when COVID hit, I also, am I back? Uh, so yeah, you're back, Wendy. Maybe you could roll it back uh, 20 seconds, 10 seconds for us. Sorry, um, just that it's not, I don't see it as my primary struggle, but when, um, when COVID hit um, and I realized that, you know, I realized that, that contingent faculty are all on the chopping block, I felt like I had to do my duty as a worker. And so I began working with, with Raft. Um, and I intend to, to do that, but I don't see it as my primary um, place in struggle. Um, and I don't define myself mainly as either contingent faculty or like campus activism. Yeah, thank you for that, Wendy. Um, you mentioned one thing a moment ago I wanted to ask you to go a little more concretely and then we'll and then we'll move on uh, to Damon uh, but you mentioned that the very character of, of the people who are on campus right seems to be from your standpoint uh, a barrier you know to doing some of the kind of organizing work that uh, that you that you are committed to doing could you talk a little bit more about that whether from a temple specific perspective I know that you've talked about this a little bit with us before uh, how has the student body itself, as well as perhaps the faculty, but the, the student body itself at a place like Temple been changing? Um, I mean, it seems to me one thing we should be thinking about if we're serious about you know, anti-racism on a university is thinking about who's actually able to access to get inside the gates in the first place, right? Or should yeah. there be gates at all would be a more radical way to put it. But, but how the, the actual composition of who's in, able to access the university on the inside is actually, you know, raced and classed. Wendy, could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, so let me start with faculty. So, um, you know, for, since 1970 something, faculty, universities have been claiming that they're gonna diversify their faculty. But um, tenured faculty are about 4% black and it's been like that forever. Um, it's higher um, and, and the higher number, you know, the, it, it's, it's much higher at HBCUs, but at predominantly white universities, it's dismally low. So there's serious gatekeeping about who gets to come in and teach and do research and produce knowledge like that. At a place like Temple, which started out as a working class commuter college, enrollment has been seriously gentrified because in the 80s, you know, 25% of the students were black and now it's somewhere around 11 or 12%. Um, so, and then, Besides that, there's just the way that Temple University and other universities police their borders to keep the black community in which they are housed out, right? So there's all this security and um, serious police presence um, on the borders of campus and into the neighborhoods where students started to live when, when campus living was privatized and people no longer lived in dorms. So, you know, they're, it's, they're policed, militarized, borderized places that um, that shore up some kind of bankrupt 
understanding of what it means to be American, in quotes, um, they um, peddle this ticket to the middle class or, um, and for the most elite universities, they do um, manage to keep very upper class people in their positions. But for the rest of us, going to college means going into debt, having your future earnings colonized and coming out into a job market where you are eligible for some form of a low wage job. I have a PhD and I'm a low wage earner as an adjunct at Temple. So that's sort of my view, yeah. Hey, Wendy, I think we wanna come back to some of those points you raised, but let's, let's pitch it back to Bobby Lee uh, and bring in our third panelist. Yeah, so um, everything Wendy is saying actually like links back to what I was gonna bring up with Damon, because we have these statements from these schools, right? These Black Lives Matter statements, we stand with our students, all these initiatives, all of these, um, you know, task, for, task forces and all that stuff that they're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, like you said, these institutions are built on racism, classism, and sexism, right? They were built for old, rich white men, right? That's originally what it was for, and everybody else has had to fight for kind of a place at the table. And so as we've seen these statements come out, right, how do, um, Damon, how does the well-intentioned statement play out as opposed to the actual policies that they're doing, right? I think we brought up, or actually Ben brought it to our attention, the University of Georgia statement from their president, right? Um, and that we shouldn't all be divided right now. We should all be coming together to fight COVID. And why are there fights in the street? We can see why that's problematic. Um, so what are your thoughts on this? How do we, um, what are your thoughts on those statements? And then also what are things that we could actually be doing as institutions or that the institutions could actually be doing? Because I think to Wendy's point, as adjuncts, we could very easily lose our jobs for speaking out or be fired or not get, right, not ever get the job. You're basically, when you speak up against the institution, you are risking your job. You are never going to get hired full time, right? So what are some things that we could actually be doing? Yeah, so uh, on the on the well-intentioned front, um, I don't, I don't even, I don't even think they are well-intentioned. I don't think we can call these statements well-intentioned. I think they're actually artfully deceiving. Um, it takes a certain amount of artful deceit to be able to kind of traverse this narrow line where we're professing solidarity, but at the same time, not calling out the institutions that are at the helm of whatever the problem is right now, in this case being state-sanctioned murder and, and violence against Black bodies at the hands of police, right? It takes a certain amount of artful deception to be able to carve out a, a nice statement that sounds like you're saying something, but you're not, you, you did nothing to address that, call out that, say anything about that, right? So I don't even wanna call them well-intentioned uh, statements because they're not, they're deceiving. Um, and as far as what I would like to see or what they could do, um, I mean, they need to, one, these statements need to, you know, okay, we, we see what's happening, right? Call out what's happening, right? Call out the state sanctioned violence, the, the, the police brutality and all of that, right? We see what's happening. We're concerned about it. Express your concern. And here's what we're going to do about it in the context of our campus. That's the key part that most of these statements are missing, right? Is the action items. Um, in the, in the case of this one, right? What are you gonna do in terms of campus policing, right? Are you are we gonna analyze our, our campus data for arrests, for referrals, for calls to determine if there's 
you know, if, if we're seeing that our black students are, are the ones that primarily are getting called on, arrested, um, referred to the police, all of that thing, are we gonna review complaints by, police, uh, by, by students and, and follow up to see what actions were taken in response to those complaints? Um, are we gonna provide access to cultural proficiency training for the police officers, right? Um, is there gonna be ongoing training for anti-racist training for these officers are we doing any of that stuff are we doing my personal favorite and just getting rid of them on our campus altogether right what are we going to do um these statements none of them ever talk about that right they just kind of they traverse that that little thin line that i'm talking about um and 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 try to play both sides of the field so yeah they're they're, they're devious um and they're not they have no substance to them they're hollow Yeah, Damon, jumping in there, um, I mean, I think you, and as well as Wendy, have brought up the, the concrete example, not just the metaphor, but the, the concrete example of policing on and around campuses, right? Which, of course, is something I think a lot of us and in our institutions have been at least talking about, whether they've done anything about it or not. I wondered if we could, I mean, I would welcome people's comments. And, and by the way, you know, those of you who are listening in, we will be bringing you into the conversation in, in a little while and we would welcome your thoughts on this too in terms of how the demands to defund or abolish or, or change policing uh, have played out in your neck of the woods. But I wanted to also frame that question in terms of, I mean, Wendy, you also used the framing of borders, right? How the university polices its borders. Thinking about policing both literally in terms of like who's allowed on campus, who's policed when they get too near, right? Uh, or even on campus. Uh, and how that's a, a racial as well as a class thing. What, uh, but what are some, I mean, I wonder if we could think about what are some of the other ways that the, the borders of the university are policed, right? The ways in which walls, walls literal and a more structural, right, are erected and how that intersects with this systemic racism. I mean, one obvious example that I think of a lot, I, I never, I try to tell every student I ever teach that in 1960, uh, five when UMass Boston opened as an urban public university trying to address the huge achievement gaps at that time fewer you were less likely to get a college education as a black person in Boston than you were in Alabama right and that was at least one of the, the you know kind of rationales for creating a place like UMass Boston but when they op when they created that institution opened it was $100 a semester to attend right $100 a semester to attend now I'm not trying to you know, paint a picture of a golden age. There's obviously complicated reasons why universities were funded more then than they are now. Uh, some people would say the, the welfare state was always the warfare state too, right? And, and, and related to the Cold War and the need to compete with the Soviets. But nonetheless, the clear, clear one way in which the university's borders are erected is through the invisible border of tuition, right? The flip side of which is the underfunding Right, of public institutions, even as private ones may be still rolling in you know, billion dollar endowments. So I mean, tuition is clearly, right, the, the lack of public funding and the, the resulting tuition increase, but is one way that borders are policed, right, in addition to the literal policing. I wonder, I guess my question for the whole group, and then I know Bobby Lewa has a, has a question to jump in with as well, is, you know, how, what are some of the other ways? I guess, take it in either way, if you wanna talk about the literal policing on campus, and around campuses and what how what we make of that and what should be done about it but what but maybe we can also use policing and borders as a metaphor to think about what are the other ways the university is is cut off from people right is is by race and by class 
by gender perhaps as well, right, structured in ways that keep people out or don't allow them to participate as equals. And maybe we could think about some of the concrete structures here uh, and by which the university polices people, uh, defines its inside and its outside beyond you know, the actual gun-toting people on our campuses, uh, which are a problem often in their own right. Uh, Bobby Lee, do you want to speak to that or you want to let, let the panel go and take the next one? Uh, no, I just wanted to add a little bit to what you were saying, Joe, and then I'll let them talk. It was um, that in my, my dissertation, for those of you who don't know, because you know, you don't know me. Um, it was about adjunct faculty in community colleges in Southern California and how we affect the institution. But one of the things that I talked about was um, the race of our students and the race, well, race, gender, and social class of our students, as well as the race class and, um, and gender of our professors and how, as you've seen, people of color, women, and working class students and faculty, you have seen a defunding of higher education and an increase in adjunct faculty. And so a lot of prior research that I state in my dissertation, which of course is not in my brain right now, because um, I blocked that out, um, but it is, um, it, there is that argument. So I wanna add to that, like what are our thoughts on that, on this defunding since the 60s, correlating with that rise in students of uh, color, women, female students, and um, working class students. So I just wanted to add that layer. Yeah, let's let's take out the funding aspect. People can take that up in any way they'd like. Uh, Wendy, could uh, Damon, do you want to jump jump on this, and then we'll go to Ben, Ben, and Wendy. Okay. Um, when when you were talking about ways that we that the university polices and 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 puts up these borders and barriers, right? We can look at um, learning theories, right? The, the the learning theories that 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 we as professors learn about, right? Tinto's theory says that that students have to be academically and socially integrated, right, into the university. Well, universities are inherently white spaces. So when we talk about social integration, we're talking about integrating students into a white, into, into to white culture, white society, white, a white identity here, right? It's, it's a sense of, uh, we're forcing them into a, a sense of uh, this tug of war between like cultural suicide and sense of belonging in the university, right? Like, uh, uh, it's almost like a, a like social, social isolation in that sense. Um, I always like to talk about um, the way that rappers talk about their teachers, right? All of them, all of them, a theme through all of them is that the teacher said I ain't shit, right? Teacher said I was never gonna make it. Teacher says I wasn't smart enough. Teacher says I wasn't good enough, whatever, right? Um, but clearly these are people who are, oratorical geniuses, right? That, I mean, it takes a certain amount of oratorical skill to be able to deliver a rap, right? Um, not only that, but they're linguistic geniuses, right? Um, but these forms of intelligence go unrecognized in the university, right? Go unrecognized in their classrooms. Um, teachers, don't, teachers don't recognize that, right? Um, to, quote, to quote Nipsey Hussle, right? He said, you know, he knows he's a genius, but he can't claim it because they left him no platforms to explain it. Right, I, I know I'm smart. I know I, I have what it takes to be here. I know I'm intelligent, but under your platforms, under the way you guys conceptualize intelligence, there's no outlet for me to, to, to show and express my intelligence, right? Um, and then he goes on to talk about how that's frustrating, right? And so that's that kind of push out effect there. And so when you were talking about policing and borders, that just, that was one of the, the, the things that I thought about. And it also popped in my head when Wendy was mentioning what 
counts as knowledge and, and who gets to produce knowledge and, and, and things of the like. I think that's a terrific ex example. Why don't we have a, a ran mandatory courses in rap, right? If, you know, in, in 20, 20th and 21st century hip hop, right? We, we, if people can be required to take a pre-1600 English, you know, English literature course, how about like a mandatory, right? Like hip hop, you know, culture, right? I mean, I, mean, I think you, you, not only theory, but curriculum wise, you, you put your finger on something really brilliant there, Damon. Uh, Wendy or Ben, would you like to respond to this broad framework of, you know, the notion, or whether you want to take it literally in terms of policing on and around campuses, or you want to talk about it in terms of the border, the funding, the way in which funding and other, and other structures effectively police or, or erect borders and barriers to full participation or full belonging, uh, as Damon has put it. Uh, ben, yeah. Oh, oh. Sure, Wendy and Ben. Sorry, Wendy. Uh, oh, well, ben. I just, I want to push back a little bit on you, Joe. Um, and the way you're, def you're sort of presenting policing, um, I don't think policing is about inside outside. I think the police function is interwoven into every part of our society. So the question with the university is not the in and the out, it is what is its police function? How does it police? Um, I think that's what Damon is getting at, right? Um, and I think it's, it, it's important when we think about policing, or at least how I think about it, um, to understand it, its function is an ordering principle, right? We, we have this um, sort of copaganda stuff about law enforcement. Cops don't enforce the law. They enforce order, first and foremost, right? Um, this is what we see repeatedly uh, when cops are, in the very rare cases, charged with crimes. What you find is the legal system wraps itself in knots to make sure what was done in overtly illegal things, like, you know, open murder can be in fact made legal. Um, and what you see, and you know, you can see this in people like Mark Neoclius's work, uh, The Fabrication of Order, um, is that police actually do a lot more law making than they do in law forcing, enforcing. And I think that's a better way to think about the university's relationship to policing overall. Um, so to take the example of uh, bringing hip hop into the university, what you would do is essentially take its insurgent potentiality, police it, package it, authorize it. I mean, look at what Harvard has done by bringing in rappers, right? Um, and it gives it a patina or a sheen of, um, a patina or a sheen of real knowledge, right? Because it has now been stamped with the university. And I, I think, um, so when we think about policing, I think we need to kind of like really think about how it is rooted in the very structures of the university. And that's kind of why I think it's worth thinking about an abolition framework is that I don't think the university, just like the police, they're not, it's not reformable, right? Um, it, it, it needs to be taken down, right? Um, and whatever education is going to look like after that, right? Um, maybe it will still be called a university um, I don't know that that's the right way to do it, but uh, I don't think this one can be shifted. Um, and I think that that uh, policing function uh, works from its uh, sort of so-called educational mission to its placement, like you were pointing out, Joe, right? It has, a, a, it's, it, it often is positioned as a sort of colonial barrack or outpost um, where I was teaching Seattle University. It's uh, located on, um, in the historically, Black neighborhood, uh, the Central District, which has now been fully gentrified. Um, it basically lives on the property values that went up um, during that process of gentrification, uh, and yet will in no way um, 
uh, do anything to interact with the community it displaced, um, right? Other than to um, police them, right? Either by bringing them in or by keeping them out, right? Because it's always this sort of um, back and forth. And then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll turn it over to, to um, Wendy, I think, is, is when we think about that ordering and policing function, I think we also have to think about our moment and as a moment in which we are seeing um, significant increases in what I would call surplus population, right? Um, people who uh, cannot, who no longer have access to the wage. Um, and uh, that produces a situation in which order has to be applied in multiple ways. One of those is the, the, the straight carceral solution, but the university is also a solution to surplus population, um, particularly using um, student debt, right? Student debt both brings, one, brings people in who otherwise don't have access to the wage with the promise of access to the wage, and then it locks them into that position, right? The necessity to have the wage in order to continue to, to service that debt that was the, the cost of entering into the wage relation. So um, I think like we, uh, the, that aspect of the university has to really be on our minds and that's a racialized thing, right? Surplus population has historically been a racialized, um, a, a racialized formation in this country, right? Um, that is uh, the uh, racialized division of labor. So I'll end there. Yeah, thanks for all that, Ben. I mean, I totally agree about the, your point about policing. I was more linking the concept to the borders notion, right? The, because there is a way in which some are some people are kept out and some things are kept out entirely. But as you point out, it's not just about what gets in and, and what doesn't or who gets in, but under what terms and, and under what conditions. And even the most radical hip hop can be domesticated and defanged, right? Just as, just as a potentially liberatory education can be turned into chains of debt, right? Uh, as you point out, and I think bringing debt in here, I think is really, really smart too. Thinking about policing and debt together uh, as two different functions of the university's, uh, you know, practices. Uh, let's go to Wendy, and then we'll go back to Bobby Lee. So I, I just want to say that um, it should be clear, and if it's not, let's struggle about this. That Western knowledge is fucked up, and is part of, is part of what has gotten us into the situation that we're in. Um, climate. Oh, we lost her again. And I think that was going to be a really, I mean, it was a catastrophe. Massive. Wendy, Wendy can you back it up? Uh, massive. Back it up 20 seconds. Wendy, we lost you again. This time it wasn't just me. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, yeah. What? Uh, so. Let me change. Clear. Sorry, if there's one thing that should be clear, it's that um, Western knowledge is, is fucked up and is, um, it, it is, is what has gotten us into this situation. So um, I think what I want to say about that is that it's precisely because it's so fucked up and so corrupt that it has to be policed. And so the whole university apparatus and the whole tenure system is designed to shore up that bankrupt knowledge and police any incursions into that knowledge, which is why um, tenured faculty look like they do. Um, so, and so I think policing is all over campus um, in terms of the books we read, um, the thoughts we think, um, the things that are, the people who are denied tenure, the people who are stuck in contingent positions, the students who can't get there because they can't afford it, and the students who are there but are going into debt peonage to be there. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I pretty much think the whole thing is a big mess from one end to the other and seriously needs to be torn down. 
it sounds as if Ben and you have some unity on that point, and perhaps we can struggle about it too, because I mean, personally speaking for just myself, I do, I do tend towards feeling like there's still some things to be struggled for. Granted, I'm at, you know, at a particular type of institution, and maybe one thing we should be mindful here too is, is how the university isn't just one thing, right? Certainly, one might argue that certain kinds of elite private institutions ought to be abolished as such, right? And that Har Harvard, the Harvard and, and Princeton you know, uh, endowment should be turned over to the people, right? Uh, but maybe, I don't know if, if urban public institutions have a different status, perhaps something we can get into, and I don't want to presuppose uh, agreement on that. Uh, Bobby Lee, you, you've actually looked into these issues also of uh, the racialization of, of, of the non-tenure track versus tenure track faculty in, in the California state system, one of the largest in the country. One thing, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that at some point, but I know you have another way you want to take us. So Bobby Lee, take it. Uh -huh. Yeah, no, I think I can touch on that real quick and then I can bring it back because actually what I was writing down to ask about was, can these systems be saved or do we have to start from scratch? And that's something that I've personally been wrestling with. Um, Damon and I are friends on like a personal level, so he hears me complain about this and whine about it all the time. Um, but I think I'm going to so go back to the race stuff and then I'll come back into this and I'll touch a little bit on tenure. Um, so because I have it up right now. So at our UC system, which is the University of California system, um, it is, where were my numbers? It is 26, no, 70% of faculty are white, of tenured faculty, excuse me, are white. Um, and the Cal State system, so the California State Community, or California State University system, it is 62% of faculty that are tenured are white. In the community college system in California, it is 61% um, of tenured faculty are white. And I think it's important to note that even though the Cal State and the community college system are closer to that 50% or more. By the way, the students in each of those systems, only about a quarter of those students are white. It's like 24, 26, and 25%, right? So this, the faculty do not make up or look like the students for the tenured, but the part-time faculty are far more diverse. Um, so there's, there is that big part of this. Um, and then that gets into like, what is tenure? Why do we have it? Why do, um, when it just tends to protect people, it's gotten completely bastardized, like I said in the last episode, but it protects those who are racist, who are sexist, who are classist, who are toxic in our institution, and there seems to be nothing we can do to get them out. And so I'm leaning more and more towards what Ben and Wendy said, which is we have to start from scratch, that this system has to be dismantled, and I don't know what that looks like or how we, can, how we rebuild something, but I guess the question is, what does that look like? What would we want to see? How would we start there? And yes, Wendy, personally, I'm willing to lose the job um, to, to make space for other people to have that because we have to have people beyond me saying it. I mean, I said this about, I saw an article that, and this it seems tangenty, but it comes back, I swear, that it was like, does Jon Stewart need to make a comeback? And I was like, no, I don't need another fucking middle-aged white dude's perspective on politics. I need diversity. I need somebody else. And I think it's the same thing with our faculty. I think students are like, we're sick and tired of hearing the same thing from the same people. We need diversity of perspective. And not just look, because a lot of the time they're hiring these people to, who look diverse, but have the exact same thought process they have. They're hiring Ben Carsons, right? So, so I guess my question to all of you, and I'll, I'll start with Ben because I know you brought, you said it as I was writing it. Um, what does that look like? How do we, how do we begin this process? What do these schools or should these schools look like? What, what do we do? Uh, I think they should look like fucking battlegrounds. Uh, that's what they should look like. Um, I think that 
you know, I mean, to me, I think um, in, in what currently exists as a, as a dispensation, we need to struggle for what we can get out of it. And I, I think like that's to sort of piggyback on, on what Joe is pointing out that that universities, even though I, I do think that they're fundamentally unreformable, um, it's not that things cannot and potentialities cannot be wrenched from them, uh, but those things will be a struggle and that I would say they'll be done um, behind the backs of the institution, right? Um, I know this may not be the favorite for everybody, but right, like um, Moten and Harney and the undercommons, right? They start with this playing on Shakespeare, right? Um, and I think it's steal thyself to the university and steal from the university, right? And, and the idea is, is if you have access, because the universities do hold resources, um, when you get there, you should be, in politic, uh, steal, take, uh, manipulate, defy the institution from within if you're there, um, but ultimately never put your faith in it because it's only ever gonna fuck you. Um, and it does not care about you. It does not care about your students at all. They are lines on, on, on a spreadsheet, right? I mean, if COVID is showing us nothing else about institutions, right? Um, the fact that they are literally willing to serve up their faculty, students, and staff um, to a deadly disease that they will then go and bring back to their families and communities shows you where their priorities are. Um, to say nothing of the quality of the education that, that is being provided in these instances, right? And I don't know about the rest of y'all in your university situations, but I know that mine never even paused did not ever think like, maybe we need to really fucking do something different in this incredibly un uh, uh, unprecedented moment. It was just like, how do we get the, how do we keep the tuition dollars coming? Um, how do we make sure we don't refund anything, <laughs> right? Um, and how do we indemnify ourselves from any uh, liability when people do get sick and die? Um, and so I, th I think like, um, as it exists, I think it's about like either both open struggle and struggle behind the back of the institution, stealing what you can, um, you know, uh, finding your collaborators. Um, and I think in the open, challenging it, making it clear that it, it, it cannot live up to the things it says. Um, but ultimately, I think whatever, the, and I, I hope this kind of jives with what Wendy is saying, whatever happens in, the, in a university has to be linked to what's outside of it right? Like this has to be part of a much larger, uh, this is one node in a much larger movement, right? Um, and I think for folks on the universities, we really have to think about how we can articulate that relationship, right? Um, how the struggle in the university has to connect to the struggle in the street, in fact, has to become the struggle in the street. Yeah. All right, I'll stop with that. No, that's, that's great, Ben. And I think, I mean, I think there is a kind of uh, an interesting line struggle debate that's forming. Uh, you, your comments from Wendy and you and others have prompted one of our, our SNS regular uh, followers and uh, uh, I guess respondents, Bruce Simon from upstate New York, uh, it, uh, works at a public institution, to write an interesting comment and question in the chat box. But I'd like to actually welcome Bruce. Now, since we've gone about an hour, to start welcoming folks who have been on the call into a more active role. So, Bruce, first off, welcome back. And uh, what is your question and comment? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I totally felt under commons when I was at Princeton. You know, I, I felt don't conform, do the project that I thought was important to do, work with the people that I thought was important to do. I don't have any loyalty or love of Princeton, um, but my first job um, has been at SUNY Fredonia, way out in 
the western edge of New York, and it's a rural regional public university. Um, it, uh, you know, in the last five years has seen more black students uh, alone in those five years than in my previous 15 years of, of being at Fredonia. The underrepresented minority percentage of entering classes is now over 30%, sometimes 40%. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, this, this is hearkening back to some problematic rhetoric and uh, discourse from ages ago, but in a very strange way, Fredonia is like a melting pot of New York State at this point. It has suburban kids, it has kids from various cities, students uh, from, from New York City and Long Island, and it's undergoing a lot of changes. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd hate to see an institution like that go. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, are we playing into the hands of, of privatizers if we lump all universities in as non-reformable? I would love for my students to have this attitude towards Fredonia of take and, 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 and change the place um, and, and feel like it's, it's, it's yours from the start and don't try to fit in. Um, I'm, I'm looking for concrete ways to, to make that happen, um, both in classes and through reforming or abolishing university police. Uh, they're state police in New York State. They have until April 1st, 2021 uh, to be totally rethought or reinvented under an executive order. So, so Bruce, I mean, I appreciate you pushing back on, you know, the idea that some of these institutions anyway have things that, that are worth defending. I guess I wanna, I'd like to pitch that back to, to Wendy uh, and, and in, in, the, in the following way, when Wendy, I think you used the term non-reformist reform earlier. Do you see a place for non-reformist reforms with respect to the university or higher education and if so, how so? Feel free to say no. I mean, you've definitely, and I mean, I guess I, I would also, I guess, make the side comment, which is that we don't, I think all us experienced organizers or activists know you don't just wear one hat, right? It's not like one size fits all in terms of like the tool or the con concept for struggle, but this notion of, you know, abolish and, and, and having the more, as Ben says, fugitive relationship to the university that you're kind of taking things for elsewhere, right? Stealing resources for struggles that are elsewhere. That's one way to think. But what about this notion of non-reformist reform? I mean, is this, do you see this as a useful concept in terms of university-based struggles, Wendy? And I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, Damon and, and Ben, and, and really everyone here on this, what if, you know, what would that look like? Or what does that look like? Uh, I'm sure it's, it may be ongoing, not just hypothetical. Uh, Wendy, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, while I'm sure there are schools that are good and that people like, I think we're talking about larger structural issues and what's the relationship to university um, of universities to racialize capitalism. You know, what's the relationship between, um, you know, upholding racial capitalism and what the kind of curriculum that gets taught. I don't even accept the idea that college is worth it, right? I think maybe people need to go out, go to carpenter school and learn how to build houses in the, you know, take over abandoned houses and learn how to put the electricity and the doors back on. I'm not entirely sure what it is that people are learning when they go to university, especially mine, you know, and I, I don't know what everyone else teaches, but I'm pretty sure I have the big picture. So I don't, I don't, um, you know, I, I don't know whether I think there's a whole lot of non-reformist reforms that we can, that we can push here. And, you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's quite all right. Yeah. Uh, 
Ben and Damon, do either of you want to speak to this question? Which is not at all to foreclose the deeper point that you and that, that Wendy and, and Ben are making about needing to illuminate these deeper structures, which can only be changed with a broader change in society. But nonetheless, uh, Ben, do you want to speak to what, you know, or, or others, what would a not, you know, would a uh, non-reformist reform or, or a struggle worth waging that is anchored in the university look like right now? Uh, I'll real quick. I think um, you know non-reformist reforms would be pushing for um, tuition-free uh, tuition-free attendance for um, uh, people of color, right? In particular, um, the descendants of slaves. I, I think that that I think reparations, right? That would be a non-reformist reform. However, you could get at it, um, and 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 some other things like that. Certainly. Um, and I would certainly say uh, that um, defunding uh, defunding cops and putting that taking that money and putting it in black student unions and other um, uh, other on campus organizing. Okay, so the, the idea of tuition free attendance, specifically also for for descendants of slaves, for for people of color, a, a form of reparations in and through the university. Damon, would you like to, I know your focus tends to be so far on the, the classroom, the teaching itself, which, you know, the actual like pedagogical space. Uh, do you want to, you could speak to that space or more broadly, what would you see as something that can be done, you know, within or around these educational institutions that would be a step in the right direction? Um, sure. So uh, one, I think we need to kind of get away from, we need to do more work to untether the university from the capitalist society, right? Uh, stop seeing degrees as, like degrees have become a form of currency, right? Your, your degree is all about increasing your, your market value, right? Um, and when we positioned universities that way, uh, we kind of got away from higher education as a means of human development, you know what I mean? Um, and I think, it, I, I think getting, getting back towards that, well, is, is, is one thing that needs to be done. Speaking on the classrooms, um, or not just the classrooms, but in, in terms of administrators and, and, and the like, um, and another thing is, is getting rid of the, as to, to go off of Audre Lord, getting rid of the piece of the oppressor that is resides within us, right? That knows only the oppressor's tactics and the oppressor's uh, relationships. These schools attempt to be inclusive, they attempt, and I'm using that sparingly, they attempt uh, to be more, more inclusive, right? Like, for example, using, uh, let's take holistic admission processes, right? Uh, the problem is if they don't have a firm understanding of the way, of their complicity in racism, of the way race neutral policies perpetuate racism, of the way historical modes of racism are still presently active today, if they don't understand and can't reckon with these parts, you know, with, with this, this if, they, if they don't have that ontological reckoning, then all of those efforts are going to fall short. And so like when we talk about holistic um, admissions, a lot of administrators version of that is like, we review the whole file of the student, right? So we take in, we take it their extracurriculars into consideration. Um, we take their, um, um, what's something else that, that they that they have there? Uh, 
I'm trying to think of something. All right, I'll just use that. We take their extracurriculars into uh, consideration, right? But what you're not, instead of just focusing on, say, like SATs and GPAs, but what you're not taking into, into consideration there is that there are certain students who can't go do extracurriculars because both their parents are working and they have to come home and watch little brother or little sister, right? And so this hollowed attempt at inclusion is is now is null and void. It doesn't really do anything, right? Whereas in, instead, if we would take a whole context approach, if we had a complete understanding of, of racism and we take a whole context approach and instead of looking at extracurriculars we look at the fact that this student was able to carry a 3.0 gpa while taking care of little brother and sister right and to me that's more impressive than carrying a 3.5 gpa when all you have to focus on is school and you have the tutoring and you have all of these other things right when we look at things in that whole context approach and use that as our form of holistic admissions right now we're getting a step closer towards actually achieving that inclusion in our admission process. You know what I mean? I think that's a profound point, Damon. I mean, the, the I mean, underneath what you're saying is all the labor and the the, the knowledge that is um, and the values that are devalued, right? When that labor and that in that you know social activity is 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 not counted, right? The, you know, the, the person who's helping take care of their brothers and sisters that's having to work jobs in high school. I mean, I think that's, that's a profound point. And, and you point, the admissions process would be one concrete practice we can look at, right? In terms of how is it, how could it be reconfigured in a way that would be less oppressive or more at least open to making, you know, pushing the institution in a particular direction. We yeah. actually had uh, a couple of comments on the, the chat box, at least one person who wanted to speak their question aloud and one who didn't, but the one who didn't, um, um, Liz and the, the Liz and Stu had a question about freedom schools and what might be learned from the Black Panther Party and education that takes place outside of formal academic environments. It's not like this hasn't been tried before and what might be learned there. I'll just voice that for the group if people want to take that up. And then a second uh, speaker wanted to actually voice aloud their question. This is Karen uh, Pomerantz. Uh, Karen, are you there? You may have to unmute yourself. Yes, thank you. I'm going to stay off camera because I'm eating, but um, I'm a, I was a faculty and staff member at George Washington University School of Public Health. Um, I started working at the university as a hospital clerical worker in the 70s, and at that point it was right after the anti-war movement, and I became a communist and joined the Progressive Labor Party, and I'm still a member. So I'm really confused about all this, these issues around abolition and anti-reform reforms, because it sounds like people are talking about abolition as really transforming society. And I think that's what we want, but I'm confused that people think that it can be accomplished under capitalism and we can abolish and defund police by just passing legislation. When the role of the police in prisons is to control the social order and to keep the class structures in place. So I, I think we should become revolutionaries. As hard as it is to just win a small reform, we might as well put our energies into organizing structures and a vision and a plan for a totally different society. And um, that doesn't, that really is about abolition and abolishing all the common, you know, and current mm -hmm. structures that we have. 
So I just want to put that question out there. I know our party is having webinars that deals with, you know, the question of party building, the question of whether abolition is possible under capitalism, which is a huge question. And we've talked about public health under capitalism as well. So I just wonder what people's reactions to this is. Sure, Karen, thank you for that. And, we, and we've, we've been talking about these issues on the show too. Uh, mm -hmm. The last part of your question as you wrote it in the box was also, and how can we teach this in class? Mm -hmm. right? Which yes. always brings this question back to the university. What, right, what, uh, if, if the goal is revolution, uh, abolition and revolution, uh, then what does that mean for those who still at least might, if they're lucky, get a paycheck from a university or at least considers that their classroom a space that still matters? Uh, what do we think? I mean, I see a lot of nods from people uh, during during Karen's point. Does somebody uh, want to take it up? Uh, Wendy, you want to speak to that? Yeah, um, I completely agree, Karen. There is no abolition, especially of the police, as long as the point of the police is to protect private property. So we sort of have to deal with that dilemma. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think... And oh, I know what I want to say. I also want to say that I think there also is no liberatory education outside of liberatory movements and outside of a, a socialist victory. Um, and I think that one of the ways that the university stagecrafts and gaslights what's going on is that there's some little sliver of room given to people to imagine that when they teach Marx or Ho Chi Minh or whatever they teach in their classes, that that's actually um, moving the needle when it's actually not. Um, Yeah, that's a great a great point. I mean, uh, Wendy, without putting you on the spot, I know you yourself have been a long-term member of political movements. How has that affected the way the university treated you? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, people like me aren't allowed to have permanent positions in the university, um, and people like me has a lot of dimensions. It's about race, body size, sexuality, and most definitely about politics. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Yeah. So then, I mean, to follow that up, a question might be, what could be done in, but not only in the university, to create more cover for people like Wendy, nobody like Wendy, but you know what I mean? Like for people who want to, who are associated with these sorts of political projects, as well as these particular social identity positions, what could be done to give people more cover, even if the goal is like what Ben was saying, you know, earlier about like, you know, the, the undercommons notion of stealing resources from the university to, to give to struggles beyond it, right? Uh, what, what, maybe that's a way of thinking about what could be done to protect people, um, you know, so that, so that they can carry on that kind of work in uh, the most effective way. Well, I mean, in the current configurations, there's nothing you can do to provide cover for people, as far as I can tell. You know, there's no, there's no, um, you know, there's a, a judgment about what counts as scholarship and activism certainly doesn't count as scholarship and organizing doesn't count as scholarship and all the service that you do to your black and brown and working class students doesn't count as scholarship. So it's very hard to imagine that there's any cover that can be provided. And that's part of the problem. I mean, yeah. And I, just so everyone doesn't think that all I do is run around and be a revolutionary all day. I just want you to know that in our RAF caucus, um, we have put out a demand for Temple to cease its relationship with the Philadelphia Police Department and are looking very closely at the relationship of Temple Police and the way they're deputized. So I just want to say I can be practical too and I know how to organize 
on you know medium range issues. Yeah, that's that's, uh, and you've also mentioned you're active with the People's Strike, as you said, right? Uh, this might be we we want, definitely wanted to make sure to plug it. Uh, would you, for those who don't know, uh, Wendy, could you say a little more about the People's Strike effort and something that is not just about the university at all, but but much more broad? Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you, um, Joe, for, for letting me do that. People Strike is a, a Black-led multiracial coalition that grew out of a call put out by Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson, um, meant to um, promote the idea that we need general strike. But since we know we're not there yet, um, the idea is to have actions every the first of every month accompanied by a broadcast that covers the, the actions as well as um, you know, the issues we're, we're confronting. And it, the coalition, People Strike started before the uprisings, um, right when COVID lockdown hit. Um, and we will have a, a eight hour broadcast on, on July 1st, covering many issues um, related to COVID and the, and, the, and the broadcast and how we fight back. And if you wanna, I'll put it into the chat, but you can go to peoplestrike.com or look up People Strike on Facebook. I'll put it in the chat. Wendy, is, I mean, so many great things you've said that, to dig into. One I want to I want to pull out, which is the term the use of the term liber, liberatory education, right? And then quickly you adding that there is no such thing apart from liberatory movements, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think I mean using the term liberatory education also makes it clear we might fight for education, a kind of view of education, but not necessarily for the university, right? Uh, educational activism is not necessarily the same as university activism. Damon, I wonder if you might step into that, um, you know, in terms of what are your views on what liberatory, I don't know what your framework for understanding this notion would be, but if, you know, what liberatory education does look like or should look like, and to what degree you think it can and or that it does under the right conditions happen within the context of a, liber of a university, or to what degree it, it it needs to seek and it does seek and, and is founded on other ground. And if so, you know, I don't know if you could flag an example for us about, you know, what is liberate, what is or what should liberatory education mean uh, to you or to your, you know, to your uh, thinking? Okay, so as far as within the university, as keeping with that same notion of, of, of almost like the impossibility of achieving it, right? Um, I, I, I think about critical consciousness right and and this idea that we ever arrive at this liberate like i arrive as a liberatory pedagogist right that never truly happens it's something that you have to constantly work at um i think a couple things that need to be present in 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 our in our praxis are this is not an exhaustive list but i think abandoning the myth of objectivity that our teachers are not objective um they're not free from bias they're not free from Right, administrators, same deal throughout the entire institution. None of us are, are free from that. Socialization makes it impossible to have that that universal human viewpoint, right? Um, and so I think we need to understand that, abandon that myth of, of objectivity, um, and then we need to be intentional about identifying where our biases lie. I'm, I'm, I hope, I mean, I'm answering this now in the context of the classroom, and I hope that's okay. Um, with the way you worded it, but um, we need to identify where where our biases lie, where our where where we are, where our oppression is in our classrooms, right? And then we need to vigilantly work to 
to to try to eliminate that right um and it's it's going to come back it's always going to it's when you wade in the ocean of racism society right the, the waters are always going to spill over into your boat so it's a constant process of scooping that water out right you never fully arrive at this critical at this critical consciousness right it's something that you just it's aspirational you're constantly working at it you're constantly trying to achieve it um but we need to be intentional about it right and we need to be honest with ourselves about our non-existent objectivity okay, okay. thanks for that damien um there's again so much to dig into here and the idea of uh, education as an ongoing project critical thinking and and not and, and and taking care of the you know attending to the spaces where we where we have influence and recognizing that well good intentions are not enough right good intentions and good liberal rhetoric is not enough to keep from reproducing these these forms of oppression ben do you want to step into that as well as as a as a guest as well what do you think you know the tasks of liberatory education look like now and again when i say that i mean to also include wendy's point about that not being separated from broader social liberatory struggles, not as a simply academic enterprise. But do you, would you like to add to that, to our you know, developing notion here of li what, what liberatory education is or should look like or could look like? Um, sure, uh, I think, I mean, I, I guess I tend to agree with Wendy about sort of radical pedagogy. Um, in insofar as people use it as a, as, as a, as a substitute for actual politics, right? That, that, that as though what one does in the classroom um, is, uh, is that work. Um, now that said, I think people struggle where they are. Um, and so if you're in a classroom and those people are in a classroom, um, that has the potential of linking up to liberatory movements, right? Um, and, you know, but in the end, it's not, it is not in itself, right? Um, now I think that kind of, I think where I would, want to kind of pick up on kind of what Damon was saying about, um, and I don't know if it's liberatory, right? And I, and I think, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting Damon, but the idea of, of emancipation, it's a horizon, right? Like, um, it's not going to happen in any one class, right? Freedom is a constant struggle, right? Like, um, so uh, that trying to keep that in mind if you when you have that, because it's a very privileged position to be a teacher, right? I mean, to be in those spaces, um, with people and when it works, it's such a magical thing. Um, and when it doesn't, it's so painful, right? Um, I think that's indicative of, of the potential that's there, even as the institution, I think, constrains that potential significantly. Um, and so I think like kind of the things that Damon was saying about making yourself vulnerable, open about the fact that you have a position, you always have a position. Um, I always tell my students, anybody who tells you they don't is lying to you. Right, and and that's the person never to trust. Right, um, but I also think, and I think Damon's right on to say, like, also try and expose ourselves in that way of, of how does our own relationship, how do we, the things we've internalized from this, manifest in the classroom, um, and, and trying to check ourselves however we can, but do it in a kind of I don't know open way. Um, so those are, but I I, I really kind of want to just keep go back to what Wendy is saying. Like, none of that is adequate. Right, I think those are good things to do because I think we should do our jobs in the way that, that as best lives the things we want to see in the world, but we should never think that it's enough, uh, is what I would say. And, and for me, and that comes around maybe in part as being contingent faculty, because I think as a graduate student, I might've been more 
seduced by the idea that, that teaching Marx or something in the classroom was enough, um, that, that the, having the radical thought was enough. Um, but then, you know, I, I worked with Marxist professors who wouldn't even like cancel their classes for strikes, right? And then I got a job as an NCT faculty and the tenure line faculty did nothing, like their politics was all about what they read or what they wrote or what they taught in the classroom, but fuck, ask them to show up at a rally, ask them to do any sort of solidarity action. And then it was like, mm, that's not really my, my thing, right? I, I got an article to write actually. So like maybe next time after I've finished this piece, I'll, I'll come and, and be involved in that. So I think like it's really important. I think what Wendy is saying about um, any liberatory practice has to be connected to a liberatory movement um, that is pushing, uh, pushing for things to happen in the world, but is also happening in the world, right? It is part of that. I do think though that, that university struggles can do that themselves and can be a part of that themselves, but it's not gonna be just in that space, right? It's not just gonna be in the classroom or in the seminar. Um, it, it has to somehow move beyond that into to the way the university is connected to life beyond it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, thanks for that, Ben. Bobby, one, one other quick thing. Go ahead, quick. Yeah. Just real quick. Sorry, I promise. Uh, I just wanted to say I think um, abolition is really important. Uh, I would say abolition is a revolutionary, um, uh, a revolutionary uh, strategy, uh, and its aim is uh, the abolition of capital, of the wage relation, and um, I th I, that's how I think of abolition. So no, it can't happen under capitalism because if it happened, we would be in the revolution, right? But, but I think that's, that's, it's also important to put that horizon out there. Yeah, and I think a useful thought experiment and a, you know, in, in the best sense of the word, what are the things that currently characterize the university that should be abolished? Like we, maybe you know, we could all make a list together. You know, a few of them have been mentioned already. There may be some things that could be radically reformed and other things that should be outright abolished. And by the end of the day, we might not be able to call it a university anymore. Uh, Bobby Lee, next question. And then we move towards wrapping up soon. It is about, we've gone an hour and a half. We'll go a few more minutes. If anyone has a pressing question or comment that they'd like to make, please uh, indicate in the chat box. Bobby Lee. Um, yeah, so like I'm listening to what everyone's saying and I think most of us are on that page of abolition needs to happen, right? But that's like a long-term big picture goal. That's not gonna happen tomorrow. And I mean, unless the genie from Aladdin is real, right? So it's, it's not, so what can we do now? I think is something that we should talk about because I think, when I'm, yeah, student debt, I see Ben says, right? Um, I saw that um, Karen brought up, right, that they're eating up the research. And so when Wendy talked about this, this was something I also wonder about, right, is like, how, how do you get the research out to people? Not just so that other academics are reading it and going, oh yeah, racism sucks. And then using that to like write their next article, but there's no practice. How do you get um, full-time tenure track faculty on board with, with understanding the struggles of um, non-tenure track faculty, right? Of, of understanding that they are perpetuating these hierarchies with their hiring practices, right? When they're sitting there with only 25, 24% of them being tenured or tenure track, and they're like, well, we can't help you because that'll undermine tenure. I'm sorry, you don't, tenure is already under attack. Like Ben said, we are your surplus labor. Try to strike. How are you gonna strike when over 70% of faculty will gladly take your job, take your benefits and take your office, right? Like how, how do you do that when you have this system, right? So 
I guess, how do we bring the two together um, to, to start moving towards this like liberated college? How do we move towards abolition? What are the things we can do? Okay, so ask for as an appropriate ask as we get near the end of a show, concrete things people can do, knowing that none of them are adequate and enough, right? But things what we do and don't do matters. What's a, a concrete thing to, that you think people could do or stop doing uh, that would, um, you know, that would push us in that right direction? Uh, Wendy? Um, people need to um, unionize faculty, workers all over campus need to unionize, and then workers and unions need to push their unions to be as militant and as left as they can be. I think that's one concrete thing that can happen. I also think that we need to develop coalitions across the different divisions on campus. So workers um, of all stripes, um, uh, students, um, community, the community that it's in, parents maybe, alumni. I think we need to, to develop broad um, coalitions to deal with this stuff and, and, and fight for, for your labor union. That's great. Unionize, push your union, don't just be passive in it, and then don't just think about the narrow union, think about the broader coalition of, of communities and interests. That's great. There's a question in the, uh, people could also respond to what students can get involved with from, uh, from uh, one of our participants online. But let's go to Damon first, and then maybe we can we can address these last comments in our last couple minutes. Damon, what's a concrete thing you think, uh, you know, that uh, people could do or or stop doing that would that would open up more space and progress towards this uh, liberatory potential? Um, I think we we need to we need to lift marginalized voices and and more importantly believe marginalized voices when they tell us about what's going on. Right. Um, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people in the chat and, and that are that are on right now and seeing the, the Twitter hashtag like black in the ivory, right? And 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 we're seeing all of these things that all these black educators have been talking about, right? But I mean in that hashtag it's getting listened to, but obviously nothing has been happening. Every single story in there is about how and nothing happened. Like the end of the story is and nothing happened, right? Or and it went business as usual, right? And so, I mean, when we when we diversify these spaces, right, and bring diverse people in, if we're not gonna do anything to make that space a welcoming space, then diversity, all you do is bring somebody into a hostile territory, right? We have to, we have to lift, lift those voices, believe those voices, and uh, uh, work to make that a more, like to do the, do the actual work when they, when they tell us what the issue is, right? Yeah. Yeah, powerful points here. Of course, we're, we're technically coming to the end of our promised time, and yet now the chat box is blowing up with a number of comments from folks. Um, I, I think that we promised at the beginning of this episode that this would be the first of a series of conversations, you know, uh, rooted in the university, but also uprooted in the university. Um, and uh, I think some of these questions that have been raised, including the question of whether tenure is to be defended, extended, or or, or abolish the question of uh, the redeemability or not of the university, I think. And, and, and the, frankly, the, not only, I think most who have spoken agree that we need to link university education, li any liberatory educational practice to social movements. But the question of how to do that, I think, is still very much an open question and perhaps something we could take up in the future. What can 
our, our educational and union and labor activism in and around the university learn from these recent upsurges, from the students and, 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 and people of color speaking up and organizing outside of university formal spaces. I think, uh, you know, if anybody wants to make a list of what, they sh what should be abolished, uh, you can follow Ben, abolish grades, abolish, you know, abolish tuition. Uh, but I think we have the makings of a future conversation. Perhaps what should be about, we could have an abolitionist, openly abolitionist conversation about higher ed. What is to be, to be done and to, what is the list of what needs to be abolished? Uh, because my producer uh, needs us to stay on time for reasons I won't go into, I think we are going to wrap up this episode now. But I want to thank you all for your very valuable contributions, your comments, your questions, those who spoke, those who wrote. Uh, we will be back here again next week at 6.30 p.m. to be joined by the very important uh, black uh, left scholar, Cedric Johnson, and other labor scholars around, scholar and activists around the country. Join us 6.30 next week for Shelter and Solidarity number 13 as we enter our fourth month of unpaid, hopefully liberatory educational and discussion-based work here. And we uh, just want to thank all the, all the participants today and help us keep it going. Spread us to your networks. We don't have that institutional backing to amplify our voices artificially. We got to do it the hard way. And uh, hopefully it's, 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 a, it's an enjoyable process with working with great folks like yourself. Thank you all for being here. And I hope to see you next week. Till then, stay safe, stay engaged, stay together. Shelter and solidarity. Strange.